I think it's fair to say that though we all, we all run our own race, in a sense we're all individuals in the race of life, even in our faith life, we all run our own race. So much of what we are able to do, so much of what we can achieve is done with the help of other people. At Psalm 131, um, it's the last, uh, Psalm 133 rather, it's the last uh, Psalm that we're gonna look at. It celebrates unity. It's only a short Psalm, so you can sort of soak it all in. It's helpful to have it up there on the screen celebrates unity as something good and pleasant. So this, as far as I can figure out, was probably authored, the really clever scholars say, this was authored when David brought back the 12 tribe, when he became king over all of Israel. So there was this, so he either wrote it before or after to sort of commemorate and celebrate. And you can imagine this brought, this, this, this sort of had the appeal of national pride and identity and purpose. It had those sort of emotions running through it. But it was also sung as Israel, as the pilgrims reached, we're going through the Psalms of Ascent, it was sung as these pilgrims reached the top of where they were headed, reached up towards the temple, got to the top of Mount Zion, reached wherever, wherever they were going. Two, two things that I think really help sort of us to, you know, thousands of years after, sort of engage with how that would have felt. One of the things I've read, very interesting, I think, about the Psalms of Ascent, is that the, the tempo increased as it went along. Have you ever seen the, have you seen the, I think it's the Icelandic or the Nordic clap? Have you seen when they do that? They do it in a bit in football, it starts off really slow, and then there's maybe one big brave dude will start it off, and then it, it sort of builds, and then there's loads and loads of people joining. Well, the Psalms of Ascent, as they were sung on the way up, they reached this kind of crescendo as they got to the top. But not only that, not only was there that, this kind of crescendo in song, when you climb any mountain, if, when you get to the top, there's less and less space, isn't there? There's less and less room for people to be. So all these people are congregating, and you've got this incredible atmosphere as you get to the top, and this amazing sense of unity. Now, something that, this, that David mentions, and you can easily slip past this if you're not concentrating, it says that when that happens, it's good and pleasant. So you read, you know, I read that over the first time, I thought, oh, that's just two words that mean the same thing. But especially if you've got tots, you'll know this, and you're trying to get greens down them. What's good for you and what's pleasant can be completely different things. You'll see, you know, I, I don't do it anymore, but you'll see, we've got some tots here, you'll see parents go, have this, and shove it in their mouths and go, this is good for you. And the look on the tots face will say, this is not, it's not a, this is not a play. I'm not enjoying this. This is an unpleasant experience. And as we know, we know as adults that things that are pleasant might not necessarily be good for us later on down the line. And David says about this psalm, about this moment in this psalm, about this moment, this, when God's people come together, when, you know, as, as, as we are, and you can imagine him, I guess, like, as they get atop, as they get towards the temple, as they're singing this song, as the tempo rises, as they maybe see people across the way that they've not seen for ages, as they see the fact that God's story is enduring, as they share stories, as they think, oh, that's the guy I saw years ago. It's great that he's still a pilgrim. It's great that he's still walking the path. You can imagine how that is. It's not just, it's good in that it's like kind of, it's morally affirming. It's keeping in God's way. There's, there's, there's that sort of goodness to it, but it's also pleasant. It's also like, ah, there you are. You know, it's an amazing time. And, and David in this psalm uses two sort of pictures for us to get there. Now they are, 
if, if you're somebody like me who occasionally just re- is reading their Bible, you know, try and read it over breakfast, that kind of thing, you'll occasionally, you'll be reading along with it, and uh, you'll sort of get to the end of the chapter, and you go, oh yeah, that were good. What's the, what did it, so just re- read this verse. This, this verse was one that I read a few times, and then I had one of those moments where I had to go back and go, did it, what did it say? What's that about verse 2? It's like precious oil. Ah, it's like precious oil. Yeah, when we all come together, it's really good. It's like precious oil. Poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. And you, 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 I, I had that, so I read it a couple of weeks in advance. And I thought, oh, that's a nice psalm. And then I got to the end of it, like, was there something about a sticky beard in this? Was there something about oil running, running down? Maybe I'm just supposed to, maybe I'm not supposed to be, you know, I'm not it felt like it was a bit of a personal moment. It felt like it was not something I was supposed to be looking at or seeing. But it is. You see the way that it's written? It's like, I've, and this might just be my personal sensibilities, but I find the M&S Christmas ads a bit awkward. Do you know the ones that I'm talking about? I feel like they're flirting with me. I can't handle that sort of level of engagement. You know when the food comes on and there's like all the chocolatey stuff dripping down? I'm already... I'm, like I'm already salivating. It's already awkward if there's people around. But then the sort of slightly, you know, friendly, flirty voice comes on and it's like, this is not just food. This is, M and, and I'm like, oh, give, give me a break. I can't handle this sort of connection. I'm just not, I'm not ready for it. This psalm asks that level of intimacy from us. It asks that level of connection from us. Just don't let us away with it. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. Like, and this, this, like that bit, I'm like, I don't know if that makes me want to engage with this subject anymore. But if you're Hebrew, if you're Jewish, this is like, this is an amazing thing. You're really drawn into this. And where does it take us to? Where does it take our attention to? It's not just, it's this lavish show. Uh, if if you, you can read about what's actually going on here, if you read Exodus chapter 30, it tells you, it gives it in a bit of detail, this substance that's pouring down Aaron's beard. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff that's going down there. It's like, some commentators describe it as like, like 40 liters, more conservative ones. You know, can you imagine? That's, that's, a, that's like a drenching, isn't it? That's like a big deal. More conservative scholars say it's like three or four liters of this sort of stuff. Liquid myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, and cassia, which as I sort of looked into what they were, they're just really very sugary things, like probably quite nice, and just loads of oil. It's like this luxurious, sweet, aromatic senses feast pouring down uh, Aaron's head. Why, why does it take us to this place? Why are we drawn over this like an M&S ad? The pilgrims are reminded what's brought them together, why they've set off in the first place. What's, what this, what, why are they are set apart at all? As they think about Aaron, Aaron's a bit of a hero to them, this patriarch, this Passover pioneering Egyptian escaping, promised land searching, endeavoring hero, as he, the high priest, is anointed. As he was anointed with his purposes, in a sense, all of Israel gets shares the shares the anointment, shares the position. And as as we sort of get a glimpse of that, if you're a Hebrew, you'd really appreciate this. As you think about the this stuff dripping down his court, it includes a mention of his court. It would it would have dripped past the 12 precious stones that the high priest would have had on his, on his outfit, which would have represented each of the 12 tribes. You would have had this incredible sense of unity. Like, this is awesome. That's what this is about. The pilgrims would also have been reminded 
Like how intoxicating this is. As God's people come together, as they bump into each other, as they spend time with each other, as they share stories, as they see each other still going on the journey of faith, as they remember their amazing calling way back, their holy calling, they would have been reminded just how amazing that was. It's not just something that's good. This is something that's amazing. Sometimes we get a sense of that, don't we, when we come together as God's people. That's the first picture that he drew. But he does another one in verse 3 as well. Verse 3 says, It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So these are two mountains that are miles apart. They've got nothing to do with each other, really. There's no way that Hermon can really affect Mount Zion and where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is, not really, not in a literal sense, and yet that's the language that he chooses to describe how it is that Christians come together. He uses this idea of Hermon, so this Mount Hermon, if you sort of Google Mount Hermon, you'll see it's a snow-capped mountain, it's a massive big thing, and Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, it's a big hill, but it's not, it's not this kind of big, so Mount Hermon's got snow on the top, and when you've got a mountain with snow on the top, in the summertime, some of this snow melts, and so that the towns downstream, even though it can be arid, even though it can be quite dry, you've still got like lush, almost like miraculously, like, how is this? We've not had rain for ages, and yet the streams are still flowing really deeply. And David uses this picture. He says, it's like little, little Zion, our hill. It's got a bit of water, but it's nothing spectacular. It's like, it's like we get miraculous provision. We can experience miraculous provision. God's people dwelling in unity is, is like a place like Mount Zion getting blessed with miraculous unity. Though, though that they, they can be living parched lives, you know, though, though that they can be dried out with life, when God's people to get, come together, when they see each other, when they interact with each other, it's just like this refreshing, miraculously refreshing experience. It's almost, as David describes it, it's almost like nature is on their side like miracles can happen, like there's going to be provision, even though it looks ropey and rough at the moment. When God's people come together, it's good and it's pleasing and it's intoxicating and it's refreshing. I think we're here in this moment today. I think it's important to make all these points because it's so easy today, especially today in the world that we live in today. It's so ridiculously easy to think that we get everywhere that we get, we get, we get there on our own. All of, lo, not all of the wisdom, loads of the wisdom of the world heads us down this individualistic direction. You know, go your own way, it's all relative, whatever makes you happy. There's so much wisdom, and of course there's some truth in that, but there's so much wisdom, there's so much of that wisdom that comes our way. Even amongst, even amongst people like me, even amongst Christian circles, Often the language we use, even some of the songs that we sing and some of the ways that we pray, suggests that this is all something that happens on your own. And yet, when we read God's Word, we realize that that's not the ultimate reality of it. Of course, it's part of the story. Of course, we make personal confessions of faith. Of course, some of this journey we walk on our own. But there's so much more, and we know this, there's so much more to a journey through life, to a journey through faith, and stuff than we can do on our own. If you're, if you're kind of working this stuff through, or if you think, actually, I've been quite glad of the space, 
through, through COVID, I'm enjoying life on my own, and I think I can just keep working it out. Listen to the words that Jesus uses in John 17. I think we've got them on the text. So this is, um, this is Jesus praying for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. And at that point, he's referring to uh, the disciples who he was talking to. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That's the people beyond uh, the immediate story. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. This is really, uh, I think, really profound information that we're hearing here from Jesus about the way that life works, about what it is to be a Christian, about what it is to exist and, and do the faith walk even today. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, the context for this, the backdrop to this is Jesus dies the next, the next day, I think. Jesus, Jesus sees the cross before him and he, he looks back on these, on these disciples and this Christian movement that he started and, and like loves them. And he, he, sees, he sees like the fury that's coming their way. He sees how this will pan out. He sees what it's been for him. He sees what it's going to be like for them. And what does he pray for them? What does he say to his father? He says, they're going to need to know unity like they've never had it before. They're going to need to know unity like we know unity. They're going to need to know unity. And it's, it, all the picture develops beyond that. It's not, it, it doesn't just finish there where he says, we're going to, they're going to need to know the kind of unity that we have. He says almost, you can read into it, um, they're going to need to feel wrapped up in the kind of unity that we have. And as that unity exists, they're going to see, this is the, I think this is the amazing thing, the world is going to see the work of God in them. Part of God's glory passed down is going to be seen in them. It's amazing. It's ridiculous. But when, the, when Paul talks about it, he talks about the idea of a body that is able to move and as Christ functions as the head and it all begins to work as each individual bit does its part. That's what faith, walk the faith walk is life, is like. It's revealed. God himself is revealed as each little bit does its work, as the, as the unified body of Christ pulls together. It's seen in, in all of us. So Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5, and sometimes we read this as a bit of a naggy, whiny list, but actually he's just saying, this is so important, you need to think about these things. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, he says. We're all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't steal, not just for the sake of not stealing. Work, do something useful with your hands so you've got something to share with somebody in need so that the whole group benefits. Don't let rubbish, that's my word, come out of your mouth. Only what's helpful for building each other up. Don't let bad stuff come out of your mouth because that breaks people up. Only use words that are helpful for building each other up. How hard is that to practice according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen? Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Why? Because we are God's workmanship. 
he is evidenced and seen in our unity. As we pull together in Christ Jesus, we look more like God. People get to see God in us. The outside world looking in and us ourselves get to see our creator God in each other. It's amazing. You know what the main reason I, I was able to get through my awkward teenage years and, and, and keep my faith is, I think, hang on to my faith almost definitely when I look back. And the main reasons I was able to exist in church when I was an awkward I was awkward for a while. I'm just trying to put an age on it, like 12 to 20, <laughs> something like that. How I got through my, how I hung on in my Christian faith at this time, it was the Jew. It was the miraculous, it was like the psalm says, the miraculous provision of God pouring into my life. It was that. Now, preaching's really good. I'm a preacher massively important. When I was going through the mill when I was a kid, it wasn't the preaching that kept me, I don't think. Of course, it's crucial. I don't think I was listening very much. The singing, I love the singing now, especially when we can't sing, but see, when I was that age, hated the singing. But this miraculous provision of God, this grace that sort of overspilt towards me that was like Mount Hermon, kind of mountain that could just refresh almost miraculously at any point. That was my experience as an awkward Christian kid, more desperate to get out of church. I experienced that in Jesus Christ, that he loved me like that. I knew that, and I saw it. Where did I see it? In God's people, as they came together in unity. There were people growing up, always had time for me, always looked out for me, and not just looked out for me in a nice kind of way, were bothered enough by what God had done to them knew the importance of somebody's soul to look at me and have time for me. I wonder what the main reason people come to church is at all. I wonder what you think. Why do people start off in a church journey? I'd say one of the main reasons is the aroma that that psalm was talking about. That when God's people come together, it just, like Jesus says, doesn't he? How will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another? Jesus says, it looks amazing. It's intoxicating. People won't be able to resist this. It's just like that psalm that we've read. It's amazing. And we kind of see it, that blessing overflowing as we see Jesus on the cross, as we see the blood flow down, as we accept that part of the story into our lives, as we receive that blessing. And we see I guess we experience it amongst his people as we see if people are genuinely saved by that, if, people, if that's their point in their life that they refer back to. We, and, and if we hang around those people, we will be constantly surrounded by amazing salvation stories, people full of compassion and being filled with compassion. We will see grace demonstrated to the extent that we see something of our amazing God. Psalm 131, I would commend, Psalm 133, I would commend it to you. It's good and pleasant when God's people dwell together. There's something right about it. And it doesn't embitter us. It's not a rightness that embitters us. It keeps a smile on our face. Being amongst his people reminds us who we are, what we're called to be. And it reminds us how awesome that is. And it reminds us that if others get to see it, 
they'll think it's pretty awesome too. It reminds us that when life feels like it's dried up, we can go for a drink that refreshes our soul and we can go there over and over again to the glory of God. Thanks for listening.